So as we come back to the book of Mark, Jesus has just entered into the city on the colt, so the kind of the, the uh, triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, we've got all that stuff. We've got the, the palm trees on the ground and all that. Uh, Mark, this, this next section of Mark is confounding. It's challenging. It is uh, like visually captivating. It is very curious, very complicated in a lot of ways, I think. But again, as Mark is such a brilliant, brilliant storyteller, I just want you, I'm just going to read a small, small thing. And I just want you to imagine the scene that you just kind of played out in your own imaginations, of your own memories, of your own experience, how Jesus must have felt. So after they praised Hosanna, 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 the highest of the heaven, Jesus entered Jerusalem. So he entered the city, then entered the temple. He looked around, taking it all in. But by now it was late, so he went back to Bethany with the twelve. It's very easy, as I've said before, to, to gloss over the visuals of the narrative. When we, go, when we go through the Bible, it's very easy to skip over these tiny little lines that uh, don't seem to have any significance. But I think the more I learn about Mark, the more I read Mark, the more I read the Gospels, in fact, and the whole Bible, they don't waste their words. Mark didn't waste words. He didn't mince his words. He wasn't just throwing in fluff. When he says Jesus kind of comes into Jerusalem, it's Passover time. Jesus is one of tens of thousands of pilgrims. Jerusalem was about 100,000-ish so city. It would balloon five times the size. So there are hundreds of thousands of people coming in to Jerusalem at this time. He's just one of them. And then he enters into the, the, the temple. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a model of the temple. Have you ever seen like a visual of, of kind of the temple in Israel? A couple of you. So this temple, that is you know, the, the kind of, it's, the remnants are still there today. The physical space of this temple is enormous. This is a massive, massive compound. The temple itself isn't nearly as large as kind of the court of the Gentiles, which kind of encirculated it. And I remember in kind of in, in one of my professors was saying that it could actually house a million people. If you squished everybody into that court of Gentiles, you could squish a million people into this physical space. It's huge. And the temple has such a deep, long history kind of dating all the way back to David, when David tried to build the temple, but, but he said, but God said, no, your hands are too bloody, there's been too much violence under you, but your son Solomon will build the temple. And so this goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years, this idea of, of God living with his people behind the veil in the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrificial system and this kind of machinery that took place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And when Solomon's temple was destroyed uh, by, by the conquering, I believe it was the Babylonians, it was rebuilt with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and kind of this kind of shadow self that it was. But, but Herod the Great had kind of expanded on this temple and made it absolutely stunningly beautiful. That you could see the temple shimmering in the sunlight, you know, 10, 20 kilometers away in the distance. It just stuck out. And it was believed that this is actually where God lived. This is God's dwelling place. 
So to visit the temple is actually get as close to God as you possibly could get. And so these pilgrims coming for Passover, there'd be throngs, thousands of people walking in and out of the gates of the temple with their families and their caravans and their, their stuff. And there'd be money changers and, and animals and for sale and different, different kinds of grades of animals for sacrifice because it would be really treacherous to bring your lambs or your whatever, your doves for your long journey, your long pilgrimage for Passover. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, he comes into the city, he's surrounded by people. And he comes into the temple and he looks around and he takes it all in. When he takes it all in, that tiny phrase, what is he taking in? History, tradition, beliefs, voices, sounds, visuals, the belief of what the temple now stood for. And he takes it all in and he leaves. It's late. And he goes to Bethany, which is about a 40-minute walk away. And he goes to sleep. We know that this is now coming into the very last week of Jesus' life. Nobody else really does. We know, we, we know kind of the end of the story, but if we stop and we kind of like sink ourselves into Mark, how must that have felt, not for the disciples, but for Christ himself? He basically comes home, takes it in, walks away, has a sleep, and when I read Mark, I can just feel the tension that Jesus was feeling. And Mark, again, I don't think he wastes words. He starts into one of the weirdest stories in his whole book. As they left Bethany the next day, Jesus was hungry. It's the first time that his hunger is mentioned in Mark. He's hungry. Off in the distance, he saw a fig tree in full leaf. He came up to it, expecting to find something for breakfast, but found nothing but fig leaves. It wasn't yet the season for figs. He addressed the tree. No one is ever going to eat fruit from you again, ever. And his disciples overheard him. Jesus is hungry. He wakes up. He's hungry. I can, when I read this, I can feel his tension, his apprehension, his nervousness, his, maybe even his frustration. He walks to find some, something to eat. And it's about April. Passovers are on April time. Figs don't bear fruit until around May. But he sees the leaves. He thinks he's going to find something. Now, I, I've never been to Israel, but I, I understand that, that, that figs grow. I'm not a big fig fan. Does anybody like figs here? Some of you. Well, I thought I should have brought some in. I'm not a big fan, but the figs, when they grow in full, like full harvest, you pick them, you eat them, whatever. But there's actually, there's this, like a pre-fig. I don't remember. It's something called puzzum or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But you can actually eat the pre-fruit. And it's actually kind of a delicacy. Some people actually prefer this. And so Jesus is actually probably going, thinking there's leaves. There must be some pre-fruit there. Jesus knows his seasons. He, he's not a farmer, but he knows that, you know, he's not going to look for full ripe fruit. 
He's going for something. Leaves are there. The tree looks great. It looks, looks like it's, it's fully leaving and ready, ready to bear some fruit. He finds nothing. He's hungry, and he finds nothing. So then he puts a curse on the tree. But the tree's not supposed to give fruit at this time. The disciples hear and they think, this is very strange. Mark says, this is not the time for figs. But yet Jesus, oh, there's a fig tree. Jesus curses the tree. How dare you not produce fruit? No one will ever eat from you again. And he leaves still hungry. This is a weird story. Some scholars think that this is legend. This didn't happen. This is like kind of like extra biblical kind of Jesus stuff. Why would Jesus, like he seems impulsive and petty. It's like asking an apple tree to give apples right now when we all know harvest isn't for another couple months. It seems petty and, and cheap. Why is Jesus doing that? Well, Mark is a brilliant, brilliant storyteller. Immediately, Jesus leaves this place and he goes in back to the temple. And he walks back up the steps. And he comes into the temple and he looks around at what he sees. And he's hungry. And he's angry. Is he hungry? I don't know. He goes into the temple. He sees table after table after table of money changers, of people with their weights and their balances and their scales, and the, and the animals kind of caged up, ready for sale, ready to be sacrificed. And he sees the Pharisees and the priests walking around proudly. And he sees kind of the, all the commotion and all the, the pageantry. And in the distance, he can see the kind of the court of the Sanhedrin, and he can see the garrison of the Roman army, and he can feel the tension. And so Jesus grabs a table, and he flips it over. One after the next. His disciples are probably watching him, stunned. Disbelief. What are you doing? Jesus, what are you doing? One table after the next. The shop, the table owners, the shop owners, the farmers, whoever's selling, they're probably stunned. This never happened. What is this, what is this guy doing? And he goes through the temple, cleansing it. And then he says, quoting the prophets, he says, my house was designated as a house of prayer for the nations. You've turned it into a hangout for thieves. Well, of course, the people around are very puzzled, but especially, Mark follows, the high priests and religious scholars heard what was going on. And so they plotted how to get rid of Jesus. And they panicked, for the entire crowd was carried away by his teaching. This is a really interesting story because, again, it's really hard to not think of the temple as one giant living organism. This giant machine that, did, that, that operated this 
almost every single day all year round. Families would bring their, their sacrifices to the priest to, to atone for their sins. And every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to atone for the whole nation of Israel. And this has been happening for thousands of years. But actually, I'm not sure that it was ever really supposed to be like this. The temple was always provisional. This was not supposed to be God's final resting place. And somewhere in those centuries, this idea that this was the national symbol of Israel had kind of snuck in. This was it. To be a God follower meant this was where you participated in the, the faith of God, the temple. The whole national identity rested on the temple. People's, people's faith rested in the temple practices. The power of the nation of, of Israel was held in the temple. And so Jesus isn't, he's not conflating, and I think it's, it's hard to, one scholar, one N.T. Wright, I love N.T. Wright, and he says it's, this is not about money in the temple. This story really isn't about the mixing of worship and, and money. Like, it's, it's easy for us as Western, Westerners to, to see that. You know, we don't bring money into the church. We don't sell things. Like, I'm not selling my merchandise. You know, like, there's no merch table at the back. That's not what this is about, though that's dangerous and, and often unethical and wrong. This is a, a kind of an honest thing that people are doing. If you're traveling hundreds of kilometers uh, to, for, to pilgrimage for Passover in, in Jerusalem, and you weren't from Jerusalem, and it took you a long way, you're not going to bring your perfect unspotted lamb on your journey because it would probably die along the way. So it's very, very natural, very organic, actually quite honest what they were doing. And he writes, says, you have to look a little bit deeper. You have to look below the surface to what's actually going on is that this word kind of money thieves is actually brigands, brigandeurs people who are revolutionaries, that actually use the temple as leverage for violence. They use their national identity to be violent, to overthrow their oppressors. That they would be unjust with the people around them and the power holders, the religious leaders, the high priest, took what God had given them and distorted it and so Jesus comes in and he says, that's enough. And in throwing the tables over and throwing over those things, even for a moment, he stops this system. In the life of the temple, it's like microscopic. It's a couple of hours. But he stops this, this complex, this national identity. He stops the sacrificial system. He interrupts it. He breaks the circuit. And symbolically, and in real time, he says, this is redundant. You've missed the point. Now, they didn't know that in just six, some days, Jesus would actually become the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices, make it doubly redundant, but they couldn't yet see that. Jesus is hungry. He's angry. He clears the temple. He sits and teaches. And the high priests and the religious leaders, they don't respond to Jesus. They don't say, oh, you're on to something. 
or oh, oh what, are you, what, what are you about? No, 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 no. They do exactly what Jesus is saying they're going to do. They're plotting to kill him, to leverage their power towards violence. And after this day is done, Jesus leaves. And they walk back to Bethany in the evening. Next day, another morning comes. Walking along that road, they saw the fig tree shriveled to a dry stick. Peter, remembering what had happened the previous day, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is shriveled up. The tree that had leaves but no fruit is now dead. And Mark, in a beautiful, living parable, it's not a weird story. Jesus is saying this fig tree that looks great on the outside, looks like it should have something to give the world, should be productive, should feed hungry bellies, should feed the birds and participate in the ecosystem. It looks great. But you get up close, it's empty. Next day he goes into the temple. It looks great. Everything's working as it should. All the gears and the machinery are happening. The worship is happening. But it's empty. There's no fruit. So Jesus says, to the fig tree as what would eventually happen to the temple. Some 30, 40 years later, it too would eventually fall to destruction, never to be rebuilt to this day. The function of the temple radically changes. And Jesus is, I think Mark is trying to tell us that the, the curse that he puts on the fig tree is actually a veil for the temple itself, that the purpose of God in the world was lost and needs to be refound. Jesus responded to Peter, and this is where I'd like to just, we've got some prayer requests and we're going to, to pray those out in just a minute. Jesus was, he responds to Peter. Now, I want to confess, I don't really understand exactly what Jesus is saying. I think it's, it's beyond me. It's over my head. But he, he's matter of fact. He says to Peter, embrace this God life. Really embrace it. And nothing will be too much for you. Now, if we were to stop there, you'd say, well, it sounds like Jesus is inviting Peter that you have the power to curse plants and animals, and you have the power to curse trees if you don't like them. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He says, this mountain, for instance, just say, go and jump in the lake. No shuffling or shilly-shallying, and it's as good as done. That's why I urge you to pray for absolutely everything, ranging from small to large. Include everything as you embrace this God life and you'll get God's everything. And when you assume the posture of prayer, remember that it's not all asking. If anything against someone, 
forgive. Only then will your heavenly Father be inclined to also wipe your slate clean of sins. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus is saying to his disciples, this, the pageantry, the machinery, the grandiosity of the temple is actually accessible through prayer, through the Spirit now. You don't need to crawl up some steps and see the priest and, 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 and go through all these steps and hoops to access God. He is accessible right now. And five weeks from this story, Christ actually sends his spirit so that the temple, that physical place where God resides, that the veil of the temple is broken and the Christ's spirit, God's own spirit can indwell in us. We become living temples. No longer in need of blood sacrifice. No longer in need of pageantry or, or priests, pastors. It's in us. The access to God through Christ's spirit is in all of us, those who believe. And Jesus says you can ask of God anything when you embrace this God life.